welcome to Drunk Valorant, episode 111. Uh, you might be wondering why I'm the one to announce the episode, as that is customarily a cast responsibility. And uh, I'm here to tell you that we're trying something new this week, which is the first ever asynchronous Drunk Valorant episode. Meaning that uh, all of us have the option to record individually, because we couldn't find a time to record podcasts together this week. And then I'm going to uh, sync up all of our audio together, um, not overlapping, but back-to-back, so that you guys can get each of our takes separately, since there are some timely things to discuss with the games. Now, as cool as that sounds, <laughs> there's a key for, uh, word amidst that, which is that we all have the option to do so. As it would turn out, I am 98% sure that I am the only one exercising this option <laughs> as such. This is effectively a, a solo podcast, um, so thanks for tuning into that. If you hear someone else's voice at some point later in the podcast, that'll be a nice surprise, but I, I don't think it's happening at this point. Um, yeah, so the the real reason I wanted to do this is because I really enjoyed watching the kickoff tournament for America's, not that it's over fully, but uh, this week in particular of games had so many interesting storylines and in particular, Leviathan Loud was one of my favorite series of Valorant I've watched in years. Um, yeah, shoot, I have to I have to think about what some of the classics would be, but um, yeah, I would say at least a year. And I had so many thoughts going through my my head as I was watching that, and it just it just felt topical to bring them up now. I'm also going to discuss um, some of the other games as well, but they're going to be much you know quicker rundowns rather than Leviathan Loud, which is going to be the meat and potatoes. And what am I doing? I'm forgetting the one rule of the podcast. I'm getting into the Valorant without the drinking part. So I am sipping on the Dewey Beer Flash of Diamonds uh, IPA, which is a Galaxy and Citra IPA. Taking a little sip. This, this beer is good. Um, the name is very interesting, Flash of Diamonds, which I, th I think reflects the fact that it has a very, um, I guess, sharp hop taste. Um, it doesn't have much, or it doesn't really have any, like, sour or fruit flavoring to it. It's really, you know, just the hops. And I'd had a couple of them before, and I thought... They were a little underwhelming, but as I'm sipping on it now, it's it's really nice. I mean, the Galaxy is strong, and you get that sort of, I guess, slight tartness with the, the Citra. Um, this is a good beer. Uh, not going to be one of my favorites, but a very easy-drinking easy beer if you're, you know, a big Galaxy fan. I wouldn't say it's, like, particularly light, but uh, it's it's nice. Yeah, I'm just realizing as I'm doing this that... <laughs> It's going to be way harder to, uh, you know, to drink during the podcast because it's just me talking. Normally I take sips when, when other people are talking, but uh, I guess I'll just have some pauses uh, here and there. Uh, all right, all right. Let's let's dive right into this. So, starting off, uh, the first game I wanted to touch on was C9 versus NRG. Um, now NRG came into the season obviously very hyped up, and we were high on them as well last podcast when Blate and Chase and I were discussing Americas. And it was interesting because uh, Energy versus Furia really just looked 
great. Uh, Furia pulled a couple of great, uh, like, impressive rounds out, but uh, I would say that Energy, despite the fact that they won by, you know, roughly similar scores, it was an overtime on Ascent and 13-7 on Sunset, whereas the Energy Furia were just both in between those numbers. Um, I think that the, that Energy definitely had a couple of rounds where it seemed like their their calls fell apart a little bit, where where the coordination was just not there yet. So that's one of those things that you know they're still winning and it's early in the year. So I'm not in any way. Uh, pumping the brakes on the energy hype, tra- uh, hype train. I think that they are, you know, clearly uh, one of the teams to beat. In fact, I might, I, I'm kind of still leaning towards saying that they are the team to beat in Americas. Although obviously, Loud made an excellent case for that as well, as we will get into in not too long. But yeah, just starting off, they definitely did look a little bit sloppy and uh, push past their comfort zone um, in, at times against C9. Um, but at the end of the day, they, um, you know, they still got the job done. I, I, yeah, once again, I was just kind of impressed by some of C9's individual players. It seemed like everyone was contributing. Um, Oxy as well uh, is always fun to watch, although. Um, I was baffled by some of his Yoru plays against C9. Like, some of the most confusing decisions I have ever seen on the Yoru ult. Uh, yeah, I, yes, I kind of awkwardly transitioned to that. What I was, was trying to say is that it, it, a lot of his Yoru play made sense, but in particular, the way he used his ult in two rounds in particular that I can think of was just bizarrely bad. That in one round, uh, they had taken a site on Sunset, and he was alting into the smoke that was CT, and he's just staring at Ethan on the sky, in the smoke, and at one point Ethan flashes, like, still inside the smoke, and then after his gun is fully re-equipped, or while his gun is re-equipping, um... Oxy, who's been in the in the smoke looking at him for like a solid second, just pops out of his ult, no flash or anything, and there was he also knew there was someone else like on the CT side of the smoke. It was just a bizarre choice in terms of I guess just the gamble that Ethan was distracted and wasn't gonna notice that he was there, but it was incredibly obvious he was there because he would you know he'd been there for a minute, there's plenty of time to notice the blue on the screen. And, yeah, he just got immediately wrecked, and I was like, what are you doing? Like, I don't know if maybe in ranked, those kind of things, he, he has success with those. Like, he thought that he just had a timing of the Ethan being so focused on the sky flash that he just wouldn't, you know, pay any attention to it. But I kind of feel like even in, like, radiant lobbies, you're not going to get away with that. Like, there are plenty of times that I, I don't get away with doing that, and as such, I am generally pretty cautious when I'm unalting. I tend to try to do it around a corner rather than directly in front of someone unless they're really distracted and or paranoid. If they're paranoid, that's the best, especially if, like, fade alt goes in, you just go behind someone and, boop, pop out behind them. They have no idea you're doing that, and then little Bucky to the chest makes the world go round. Um, 
Yes, yeah, so there was that one, and then it, there was also a different round where he, he was taking. He was st- the C9 was still on attack for this. Uh, they had taken B site, and he goes ulting around, like kind of exploring the the perimeter, pushing into CT a bit, uh, which is something I, I love to do uh, on Yoru. Is if, if we get site to be able to check out to see, you know, what what the numbers are looking like, where the enemies are, if I can isolate someone to, you know, give them a flash, hop out around a corner and take the duel. But a key part of that strategy, as almost like any Yoru player who's higher than, I don't know, bronze, or even if they're in bronze, I guess who've played Yoru for any significant amount of time, is that you want to have an escape TP there uh, so that if you uh, get sort of in in an awkward position with your alt, you can just get out. And if you don't have one, you need to make sure that you have a clear plan for, uh, you know, when your ult is going to run out, that you're in a safe location. So he, so Oxy went into CT and then saw a bunch of people there, and then those people were following him on the site, as he knew, and his ult ran out before he could get around the corner of the big pillar in the middle of site, and he just got sprayed down. And it was like, what, what are you doing? That... I, I don't know for sure if he had a TP available at any point there. Um, if so, I mean, may, maybe that was all that it was, was that he um, thought he had put a TP down or it expired while he was in alt. So then he was like, oh, shoot, I, you know, I need to make this work. But like overall, it was just like tough to watch it is you know as someone who likes yoru representation in games it was just difficult to see especially because he's done some really cool things on yoru he is that uses the flashes very well Uh, in general he's just a very you know chaotic and fun player so he can kind of you know making people uncomfortable with the yoru util sets him up pretty well to do stuff in general but his alt plays were just you know really awful um and yeah, the the uh, that does kind of play into the fact that even though the individual form of the C9 players was, like I said, a little bit better than I was expecting, it definitely seemed like there were some nerves and there were a lot of um, significant mistakes in the micro strategies more so than the macro ones that led to some problems. Like like one of the moments that you saw uh, that was you know posted a, a, a lot about on, on Reddit is where I believe it was Victor on the Cypher had a perfect timing on a, uh, a Lurk flank when C9 was on defense and they're grouped up in market preparing to retake B site and Victor just rolls up behind them and kills like three and <laughs> Zeppo is just enraged after the round he's like it's so predictable uh, maybe I got it slightly wrong but it was something very similar to that like he was just like, obviously he's going to do that. Um, and, and so it definitely seemed like there was some real frustration of the team realizing that as well, of being like, you know, we're making mistakes that we shouldn't be making uh, as pros. Because while, uh, you know, Jake is fairly... Last year was his first year at the Tier 1 level, and then Oxy has been around for a while at the Tier 2 level, but this is a jump for him. Um, Zeppa and Vanity and... Who is their final team member? I am not remembering for some reason. That's embarrassing. 
Oh, Whippy, right. Uh, all of them have have had a a, a good bit of <laughs> a good bit is underselling it. They've had a lot of Valorant, you know, top level experience. Um, and so there definitely needs to be more cohesiveness for this team to to do well. Um, but we'll get back to C9 because there's another game of theirs uh, later on in this. And wow, I actually talked about them for a lot longer than I thought I was going to, but um, it, it was still an interesting game. A final score for those who didn't watch it, and I should probably start with that. Um, when I'm discussing the games for people who didn't get a chance to watch them or don't remember. So uh, map one was Sunset, map uh, which Energy won 13-7. Map two was Ascent, which Energy won 14-12 in overtime. And Demon won MVP'd. Uh, yeah, quick note, Demon won, um, I would say, both of Energy's games... He has looked a little bit sloppy sometimes, um, and some of that could be because he talked about the fact that he played very little Valorant in the offseason, at least for a chunk of it. I'm not clear on the specific time of when he started getting back into grinding, but he basically took a big break from Valorant in the offseason, which I, I'm not at all saying is a bad thing. Um, I think, uh, especially with something that doesn't really require much physical muscle, but rather mental, just having a full break from it and then, you know, relearning some things uh after that like getting to focus on uh picking up the fundamentals again you know if you forget too much of it or lose your confidence that could be bad but for someone like him who he's just so natural with his aim and confidence has never been something that he has lacked uh i feel like that's probably not that much of a concern so it's good for him to just avoid burnout anyway uh that's a long way to say that um, not worried about the idea of him taking a long break. Um, but it seemed like it was definitely showing a bit through the first two weeks. Um, however, he had some massive pop-off moments in this game. If you were if you were wondering if he was phoning it in now that he's won a world championship, I, I don't know who was wondering that. <laughs> I'm making up a hypothetical person, like a lot of people often do without admitting. Um <laughs> but that person is very wrong. Demon 1 is looking great. Um, all right. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, Leviathan versus Loud. Incredible storylines going into this game. Uh, the rejected one, Aspas, versus his former team. Um, one thing that I thought was, you know, worth mentioning before we get into the game itself was the context of how we got here, and in particular, the fact that in in the middle of last year, there were all these rumors about Aspas and Loud's relationship. Like People were saying that there was this tension, there were these internal struggles, especially as Loud got off to a bit of a disappointing start at the beginning of the year, and it was always something that seemed a little odd, because Aspas was... Um, performing well. He has always seemed like a solid team player. You never see any sort of toxicity on the stage, and it seems like he's not overheating like crazy or, you know, doing any of the things that you think of, do, you know, a problematic duelist would do, either in terms of their play, you know, their decisions in-game or their interactions with the team. But there were still all these rumors about this tension between him and the team. And then one of the things that came out was that it had to do 
and it seems like this gained some credence over time, was that it had to do with him wanting to spend more time with his girlfriend and essentially just, you know, not work as hard during the season. And the rest of the team um, basically just being more locked in, I suppose. That may, It may have even been that Aspas wanted to travel to be with his girlfriend away from the rest of the team where they were like boot camping or something. I, I shouldn't have even said that because I'm just once again getting into things I maybe remember. It's, you know, useless speculation, which we do all the time on the podcast. So, you know, hard to uh, hard to say that that's that big of a deal, but I'll still try to avoid it a little bit here. Uh, anyway, um, the reason why I brought all this up is because, you know, it may not have made a lot of sense last year, the idea that Aspas wasn't working hard, uh, you know, wasn't on the same page as the rest of the team, because in terms of how they were playing last year, Aspas was still popping off, and he seemed to very much be part of the team strats and to be playing into them. Um, you know, we've seen it plenty of times before, where a team's duelist and, the you know, the rest of the team are just not on the same page, and that creates significant problems. Um, and that just really wasn't happening with Ospos last year. So, going into this game, it was the cast-off versus his former team. And Leviathan bolstered with the additions of Ospos and uh, Calm and Tex. Um, basically in that order of significance in terms of how uh, important those additions were. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we got into last week on podcast was talking about... You know, loud looking good against Sentinels, but uh, still, you know, QCK not seeming like an upgrade over Aspas, maybe they're still missing the top end. Even if they have incredible consistency to be back to being competitive, maybe they don't have that uh, highest gear that they need, which having a star player provides, to compete with the best teams. And... That question has not fully been answered, but we've learned some stuff about it. Uh, I'll stop beating around the bush, but I think all that's interesting background. So getting right into it, the first map of Loud and the Vieton was Bind. And from the first, like, six, seven rounds or so, it looked like Loud might be just outclassed in the series. Leviathan started on attack on Bind, and they were just bullying Loud and what Loud were trying to do. They were just charging into sight. They were comboing their utility very well. Um, the Vietan were running Raze, Sky, Viper, Harbor, Gecko, which is uh, becoming a fairly meta comp on Bind, if it isn't already. Well, I mean, I guess the, the non-meta part, the, the part that's I feel like probably more people are still running the brim instead of the harbor there. Um, I don't have any data to back that up. That's just my uh, general feeling of the situation. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of great initiator space denial util in that comp, which just with the coordination that they were providing was allowing them to just, you know, clear out the allowed defensive positions and, um, you know, force them off-site. And 
it was like, wow, this this match was all hyped up and maybe Leviathan is just going to run away with it. And then there was a timeout called by Loud and they managed to adjust somewhat. Like they were clearly caught off guard by some of the things Leviathan were doing, but they were able to, you know, regain their composure and um, lock in and they... It, it, it went to it was fairly competitive at the half. In fact, let me pull up the VLR. They brought it back a little bit. Oh, it, it actually it actually still was pretty bad. I, I didn't realize that that it was still nine three in favor of uh, Leviathan at the half, but uh, Loud won two out of the last three rounds. So it, there was definitely that correction. Uh, and then Loud went on a run of uh, five rounds in a row which, to be clear, is Pistol, then the easier round of the uh, buy after that, and then the bonus, which is nice, and then you get another round after that, and then one more. But then Leviathan, uh, they kind of traded rounds, and Leviathan won four out of the next seven, which is all that it took to close out the map. Um, and it was it really it was just that Loud was starting to catch up, but they dug themselves into too big of a hole uh, early on. So the first part of the map really showed what Leviathan could do with the players on their roster, the you know, this retooled squad, and with Aspas in particular, that he was making some very impressive plays, that the, you know, sheer aggression that you can have when you have very solid support players and a star duelist and you know, strats that coordinate with that, like Leviathan were checking all the boxes and it was like, wow, this is a scary team to face. Like you could see the potential. And, you know, if you just watched um, the first half of Bind, certainly, or maybe even all of Bind, you could definitely think, um, well, you know, Loud is still cooking up some stuff, but at the end of the day, it, it may, it might just not be possible for them to, get to where they need to be without Aspas. Um, but if you really were watching what Loud were doing as the game went on and the adaptations that they were making, it was really quite impressive how they were able to have both the mental strength to not get tilted and the creativity and knowledge to adjust to what Leviathan were doing. And in particular, um, the fact that on loud's attack side the way that they were attacking on bind was so different from how you know they used to do their attacks when Aspas was on the team and this is where it's time to discuss qck um because first of all uh you know i i am a big fan of hot takes but i'm not going to come out here and say that qck is a upgrade over Aspas because it seems like his, you know, his aim, his movement, his uh, overall game sense, like it just isn't. He's just, you know, a tier below Aspas as a player. Um, but he fit into what Loud wanted to do perfectly. And on the Phoenix on Bind, which was certainly an interesting pick, we're, we're seeing some Phoenix come back into the meta. And I've always felt like Phoenix is great with uh, on Bind. Um, First of all, because it seems like the flashes often get a lot of value in the, some of the more, like, important... There's a lot of, like, harsh corners that 
open up into a very takeable space. <laughs> I'm saying this awkwardly, but the flashes seem like they are better on that map than other maps. And also both of the orbs are, you know, relatively easy to contest. And obviously if you can uh, farm up the orbs on your Phoenix, you're going to be big chillin'. I also just love in general playing B long, farming up my orbs when they're not there. And then when I if I hit that sixth orb and they're not there and the team is on and the you know the offense is on uh, just to be clear I'm thinking about this from the defender side I don't know if I said that so you're a defender you you have phoenix alt from B long you can hop through the teleporter with alt charge through and just run into showers <laughs> which is so much fun um they they weren't really doing that a ton I'm sure they did that at some point um or they probably did but in general you know. The way QCK played in Bind, and in general, the way he played the rest of the series as well. Like, I have never seen a more pure definition of what a duelist is. That people have said that um, Riot's definition in game is somewhat misleading because they say that duelists are players who get high frags and seek out engagements first. And, you know, the description should really be something more like duelists are the first into the fray, uh, you know, taking space uh, for the team, disrupting the enemy's uh, positions and risking their own life to escort their team into sight. Uh, that's very lengthy and that's, you know, some unnecessary words in there, but that that's a much better description of what a duelist is and a perfect description of what QCK was doing. And... That's where kind of the, the light bulb came on in my head and got me really invested in the series, as if I wasn't, you know, enough already. Uh, and that's that having QCK as just this hard entry, rather than, you know, him being set up for kills by the rest of the team, that he was doing the setup um, at the expense of his own life in oftentimes. Um was a very interesting change, and it clearly opened up the strat book. And the way I said that, it, you know, may be a bit of an exaggeration. It certainly wasn't that, you know, the initiators were just like, ah, you know, we'll, we'll let QC, the KO and the, yeah, Sadak and Kowenzine on the KO and Breach. It wasn't like they were like, ah, we're not going to throw any of our util. We'll let QCK handle it. <laughs> like, like they, they were still, you know, setting him up to go in, but it felt like, you know, he was being treated more as an expendable piece, and I say that with no disrespect intended, uh, you know, than as someone who is, you know, trying to be put in the position to pop off. And, you know, here's the good part of that. That sounded negative, but the good part is that I almost never saw him um, die in a position that it felt like he had achieved nothing. That and this is on offense in particular that I'm talking about, that, like, either he went in and got a kill, you know, he went in and sent up someone for a trade, or he died, but he was, the you know, perfectly the tip of the spear. He wasn't overextending. He wasn't, you know, uh, too far behind either. Like, he, his death was still paving the way for the entrance to site. Um, and I just thought that was very interesting to see, and definitely uh, something that, we will probably see more of as we're moving away from a jet meta because 
uh, Jet has always been kind of a hard, uh, awkward hard entry since you only have you only have the one real entry tool of you know smoke and dash onto site, which is kind of putting you in a bit of a weird position in that oftentimes the defenders, even if they know you're there, they're not going to just spam down the smoke unless they feel like they have a perfect example of where you are. Like they're going to be going for your teammates first and then you pop out of the smoke and kill them. Hopefully Um, you're not necessarily actually taking the duel first, unless you happen to get shot before you can like dash on the site which kind of comes back down to what I was saying in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the difference in style that if you're Phoenix, you are the one in the enemy's face first who they have to deal with first. And it was just incredible to see how unified loud were in playing like that, that it seemed like QCK while not being an upgrade as a player was fitting in so well with what they wanted to do. And that was very true through the other maps as well. Like one of the things I that one of the comparisons I thought about is there've been a couple cases where an NFL uh, team, uh, one of you know typically a, a offense with one of the great QBs on it uh, leading it, has improved after getting rid of a star receiver like the Patriots when they lost Randy Moss, that or you could argue the Chiefs with losing Tyreek Hill that after a certain point. You know, when you have a receiver who's as game-breaking and as good as both Randy Moss and Tyreek Hill uh, were slash are, you can become a little too over-dependent on that person. And even if you still have very fundamentally sound strategies, which both the Patriots and the Chiefs did and Loud did with Aspas, um, kind of going back to basics and looking at, okay, well, now that we don't have this star piece, how can we come up with some more creative stuff and some stuff that isn't dependent on any one person doing really well. Uh, And, you know, that led to good results in the NFL and, you know, we'll see, but it might lead to some good results for loud. Also. Um, Also, one thing that I will note is that uh, this is kind of, Osbos had a good game on bind. So this is a little bit less, well, I'm I'm saying he had a good game on bind, but I'm looking at the the VLR and he actually didn't do as well as I thought. He actually did have a, a .72 rating, which is really not good. So I, I guess I just was remembering some of the pop off moments. Um, but one of the things that's that was noticed that I think was uh, significant both in this game and especially on um, well, both this game and the other maps is that. Aspas has, you know, his claim to fame is playing Jet, and he ended up doing that for a lot of last year, despite the fact that we were transitioning away from a Jet meta and still having success, although that did require his team to invest in making that happen. Um, But he, you know, there certainly were downsides of that. And then you could see that loud by the end of the year, we're starting to doubt if that was really the right idea to keep doing that because they did end up playing him on Rays and I want to say maybe Neon as well on maybe Lotus towards the end. And while he certainly can play those agents, um, whenever I do see him play one of those, in particular Rays, which I've seen the most, 
it definitely seems like he's just not as comfortable, not as able to contribute as he is on the jet, just because that's not what he is, you know, top three in the world at. Um, but then when they put Aspas on the jet, the fact that Loud was able to have, you know, QCK as this true hard entry role and then picking agents with a lot of, of utility to disrupt uh, the enemy team, a lot of flashes, a lot of initiators, you know, a lot of controllers. The the fact that, you know, Aspas was on the jet for Split and Ascent, which at this point, after being nerfed so much, really is just quite limited in the utility they're bringing to the table. Um, you know, the one-up draft, which is just for you anyway, but you just you have to time it very carefully. And then the two smokes, like, uh, you know, that running a jet at this point, I feel like does depend on your jet popping off, uh, especially if you're looking at really maximizing the value you can get out of your team and comparing to an agent who just, you know, can provide a lot more that way in terms of non-kill value. So Aspas is a bit nerfed by the current meta, is, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, not at, in any way relating to his specific skill, just that uh, him playing on non-jet, he's likely to not do as well, and then him playing on Jet, his team is likely to be missing something, which won't be a problem if he's hard carrying, but is a problem otherwise. Um, also, I am saying all this with a lot of, you know, I guess, decisiveness and excitement, but it, let's keep in mind as well that this is the second week of the kickoff tournament. And while I'm going to continue to be gassing loud up a, a good bit as we continue here, um, it is, it is, um, the, sorry, I, I really, <laughs> I had lost my train of thought for a minute. I'm back, I'm back on it now. I've, you know, jumped off the train, swung around one of those old-fashioned mail posts that they would grab the mailbag as they go, and hop back on by the time the caboose came around, uh, just in time. Um. I'm dangling from the caboose now. I'm dragging one foot along the rails. <laughs> oh, yes, okay, I got back. It's wild as well, because I literally have my notes written down on a screen in front of me. I could have just looked there, and I would have jogged my memory. But uh, anyway, um, Leviathan definitely have more potential untapped... Uh, sorry, uh, potential... It's interesting. I I, I want to say potential untapped potential. Because <laughs> as ridiculous as that sounds, you know, untapped potential, you know, sounds like you know there's potential there. It just isn't being utilized. And I'm trying to take it a step back by saying I don't really know for sure. So there's the potential that there's a lot there to be uncovered. But, but I don't know. So yes, they they have a lot of potential untapped potential, um, and that's due to the fact that you know this was quite a a big change to bring in, you know, Com and Aspas, uh, as well as Tex. Like basically, there's a lot of moving parts with this Leviathan roster, and I don't know how much they like how many games they played in the off season. Like one of the things that Sentinels did, 
that people are talking about a lot is that they competed in a bunch of Mickey Mouse style tournaments, which seemed incredibly helpful for them in terms of their team chemistry, team vibes, and also making the, as it turns out, very important switch to having Zelsis not be the sixth man, but uh, actually being on the starting roster. We'll get to Sentinels later. Um, but what I'm saying here is that, uh, you know, with Loud having QCK, who seems to not have a very high ceiling in terms of how good of a player he just is mechanically, um, and the rest of Loud being quite comfortable playing with each other, you could argue that how much more is it reasonable for them to improve the rest of the year? Whereas with the Vieton, it's obvious that, you know, things could come together for them and they could do a lot better as they, you know, get better at working together in them, especially in terms of the, both the micro and the macro strategy that, you know, the micro new teammates to work with in the macro. One of the things that they were talking about is that King, I believe this is his first year calling in English versus, I guess it was Portuguese before. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so, you know, that's a big difference for him. I mean, it, not being bilingual, it's, it's, uh, I have especially a lot of respect for that. Like the thought of me having to call in a, a different language is just, you know, a mind boggling thought. Like as someone who calls our premier team, it's just like having to call that and translate as I go. That's, that's brutal. Um, anyway, so Leviathan could very well be a significantly better team than Loud by the end of the year based on that. However, I'm not counting Loud out because, you know, I did that once already and then they showed me just how much they were cooking, uh, which started in that second half of Bind. Um, yeah, I'm realizing that I failed to make notes on when I wanted to transition into talking about the next maps. Uh, so I'm going to do that now. Um, so there was bind. And then on, and then on split, um, we had the loud team winning 13 to 10. Uh, there were some real exchanges of, of streaks because loud won the first two. And then Leviathan took the anti-bonus, and then uh, five more rounds on top of that. Loud won four to close out the half, and then Pistol and the and then the um, buy, and then Leviathan won four of the next five, and then Loud closed out the last four. So there were some, you know, significant chunks in there, a lot of back and forth to be sure. Um, but at the end of the day. Loud just had the edge. Um, Aspas played better in this game for sure versus the previous one, that he had some real pop-off moments. Um, but it was very interesting, you know, seeing times when what Leviathan was trying to do would break down, even though their calling overall seemed to make a ton of sense. Um, first of all, there was... There was a round that I uh, believe could very well have been the series losing round in that if Leviathan wins this, uh, they are very likely, you know, picking up the next round as well. And then who knows where things go from there. 
but this is the uh, second half um, pistol where Loud is on attack, Leviathan is on defense, as things go. <laughs> this is on split, in case I forgot to say that. And Loud gets the plant down, but like the way that they got to that position was sort of uh, scrambled, and as a result, they had one player in, like, B heaven. One player... All, sorry, sorry. The plant was on A, is what I'm, sure what I'm trying to say. They had one player in A heaven, one player in B heaven, and then the person who planted the spike was killed. Uh, so, essentially, Leviathan has, like, two people around site. They got one person... Uh, like heaven like ct by heaven and then they have the other person like true ct and rather than being decisive about like clearly leviathan did not have great info on where the last two loud players were in this 4v2 but rather than being decisive about you know getting on the spike right away and then you know swinging off and then swinging off of the the contact from the the spike being tapped um they just kind of decided to hold positions, expecting that there would be a, you know, a scramble to regain the ground in time to contest the spike being tapped. And I'll correct myself slightly to say that um, it, it's possible they tapped the spike and I didn't hear it based on the players they were spectating. Um, but they certainly didn't go for the stick at any point when they totally could, because Loud was in no position uh, to contest the spike uh, being diffused. They just decided that, you know, the loud players clearly weren't on site with the planter. They're going to have to scramble to get into position to defend this defuse, so we're just kind of going to kind of, you know, play for map control across the map and uh, get this done. And then the player in... I'm trying to remember who it was... It was Sadak was one of the people, and then I don't remember who the other one was. But essentially, they they ended up crunching into defender spawn from A heaven and B heaven, and the two Leviathan players just did not handle it very well. It seemed like uh, King was mini map peeking right when the person from B heaven came down and and swung him, so he got wrecked, and then the two were able to handle the one guy in spawn, and then from there. It was a 2v2 from a 4v2, and the the loud players were able to just win the round out. Um, when, you know, Leviathan could have just stuck the defuse, or they could have grouped up to, uh, you know, face the, uh, you know, face the two, the remaining two players together. They just kind of were happy to play in their positions and let the fights come to them, and... Loud was all over that, and that was a you know a real back-breaking round. That you know if you just flip those two rounds around, all of a sudden it's uh you know 12-10 in favor of Leviathan, and then they have those uh, two chances to uh, close out uh, before close out the win, even if nothing else is different, and of course other things would have been different. So that's one of the things that, you know, could be improved, certainly, by Olivia Tan. Um, I, I saw some people on Reddit, like, questioning King's calling ability and being like, well, you know, he's never been that good of a caller, so what's to say he's going to improve now? 
And I really don't agree with that. Um, because last year, Leviathan with the, you know, the buff and bold coach, uh, whoever that was, uh, very enthusiastic guy as well. It seemed like they had a very weird idea of how to go about playing that, they came in with some high expectations because they had a, a roster that was kind of spooky on paper. Um, but they, their coach was, you know, admitted one of the most shocking little tidbits of information that a coach has admitted in Valorant, which is that he would not tell his players, you know, they wouldn't ever focus on anti-stratting other teams because they just wanted to play their game. And he felt like it was counterproductive and a waste of time to focus on countering what another team was likely going to be bringing to the table, which just seems like a very, uh, you know, counterproductive mentality to say the least that there's so much value to be had in counterpicking or having setups that anticipate how the other team is going to handle what you're throwing at them. Uh, and that kind of showed as well in the Vietons play that, not only did they not adapt to other teams in the moment all that well, they also just uh, did not evolve very much as the year went on. So while they, you know, came out looking somewhat strong last year, they just kind of never won any of the important games when it mattered down the stretch and just sort of faded into irrelevance by the end. And there was one of the, you know, as as a big result of all of that, uh, you know, one of the classic things you would see in those games was the Leviathan save, where they would lose a couple people early on in the round, and then, you know, they just have a, a three-person, sometimes a four-person save that's called very early on, which was incredibly boring to watch, and it had to do with, you know, their getting caught off guard by what opponents were doing, and I'm especially thinking about this in terms of the defender side of things, and just having, you know, one or two people isolated and dealt with by the enemy taking sight, and then now no one else was there to support, and they may as well just save. Um, and so given the fact that their coach clearly had some very odd ideas of how they should be playing the game, and they also had some individual performance issues as well. Um, shoot, why am I blanking on who who their duelist was before. Oh yeah, Takalia, right, of course. I, I didn't even I didn't even get to looking it up, I swear. I, I just remembered as I was moving my mouse to look it up. Um Takalia was a player who uh seemed very, you know, exciting. Uh and and certainly had some major success as a chamber player, but ultimately he really had a disappointing season and outside of a couple games where he got back to some of those highs in general, he just was a pretty solidly below average duelist. I say all of this because I don't know how much of that you can blame on King. And I think that he in the game uh, against loud was doing a much, you know, a vastly better job of, you know, versus what we saw last year in terms of dialing up things that made sense and adapting in the mid-round and during timeouts to what Loud were throwing at them. 
it was just clear that Loud had more tricks up their sleeve, which should hardly be a surprise at this point, and isn't that much of a knock on King or the Leviathan coaching staff, because Loud have just been the best in the business at that. Um, and that does tie into, when I say Loud has been the best in the business at that, I'm referring to, while the current Loud team is great, I think it's time to put even more respect than we already uh, had on the, I would argue, ultimate Valorant pro duo, which is uh, Sadak and Les. You could argue Boaster, Durka, uh, Forsaken, Jing, Ethan, Demon One, Crashy's Victor. You know, those those would all be solid cases. But I think that when you take a look at, you know, the results they've achieved on the international stage and the consistency at which they've... All right, I'm back. Uh, Mike had a small issue, but we're golden now. Uh, anyway, what was I saying? Right, right. So when you look at both the consistency of the results that Les and Sadak have achieved, but also the the fact that they've done that with so much change, um, you know, losing Sassi and Pankata, who were both, you know, viewed as fantastic players, and while well, Pankata has had role issues, so it's been tough to tell how good of a player he is now, Sassi has been really popping off this year, so it seems clear that, you know, that wasn't some sort of a performance-based thing, and no one really thought it was at the time. Um, you know, to swap them out with Tuiz and Cowanzine, and then be very quickly back to the same standard of play, essentially. Very impressive. Uh, and obviously now, with losing one of the top players in the world and still being competitive, as well as the fact that I think that their coaching has changed each of the last three seasons. Maybe maybe they had their, their former coach, Fraud, I think, for the, the last two years, but they have a new coach now. Uh, either way, um, the fact that they're able to have this level of success with you know all this roster change and clearly building up these players, building up these team concepts, is... Very, very impressive. Um, and, you know, Sadak is the person who I think gets a bit more of the credit in terms of making the teamwork, bringing people in, uh, you know, the, the mind and the strat book. And then Les, while he is, you know, very highly rated, like, you don't see a lot of people, you know, talking, you know, saying anything negative about him. I think he's still underrated. I think he is, you know, a top three player in the world, period. And I also think that he, uh, you know, he was somewhat, you know, Aspas was a bit of a distraction from him. Not that Aspas was overrated. I think Aspas was correctly rated. And Les was just, you know, slept on because Aspas would get more kills. And, you know, Les had to, uh, you know, was either setting him up or just, you know, not even necessarily directly setting him up on the Sentinel role, but making sure that the round didn't fall apart. And, you know, getting value from utility and lurks that didn't necessarily yield tons of kills, but showed up in a big way uh, on the score, on the uh, overall round differential, <laughs> even if they didn't show up directly on the scoreboard. And now with him... Uh, needing to step up more 
and prove his mettle uh, against Leviathan, boy, was it impressive. That the the man had across the series 61 kills to 33 deaths. He came close to a, a 2.0 KD. And, you know, that is him playing Viper on every map. Uh, so this isn't, you know, he was very rarely, uh, you know, using his util. Uh, I mean, I guess there were probably, there were some Viper's Pit kills in there, which that definitely does help having the Viper's Pit. But that's still, you know, an ult. Um, you know, Viper is one of the agents who is least able to set themselves up for kills. And, um, he certainly wasn't being regularly set up for kills by the rest of the team since he often was on solo missions, uh, holding, you know, anchoring a site or being on lurk on offense. And the fact that he was still able to be that much of a menace is, you know, incredibly impressive. And I'm just glad that I, that I had this kind of valuation on him, uh, even before he had one of the most impressive performances he's ever had. Uh, it's one of those things where I wish I could buy stock in Valorant players because, you know, I would be eating good right now if so. Uh, I would have bought that stock in the past and, oh baby, it would be making me rich now. Um, let's see. Uh, let me get back on track here. Make sure I'm not skipping anything too much. Yeah, so, I mean, with Les, it really came down to three things I was noticing. One is just his cracked aim. Um, I think you could make the case... He is the single best rifler in the world, uh, especially if you're willing to rate consistency, which I think you should if you're going to have that conversation, because, you know, you could say, oh, well, Demon 1, Les has, you know, been doing this for far longer than Demon 1, and on, you know, roles that also put him in more difficult gunfights than Demon 1 has to deal with, I would say. and, you know, Demon 1 has hit some nuttier flicks, some crazier shots than Les has, surely. Uh, or you could look at, you know, maybe like something or probably Forsaken would be better. I don't know. Just if you look at how consistent Les is at being able to not get caught by enemy utility, you know, break it, bringing in that game sense as well, to deal with enemy utility and then to out-aim people based on raw aim alone, it is truly impressive. And, you know, I just don't think people don't appreciate it enough, especially until this game. I think a lot of people were thinking about it as this game went on. Um, like, one of the keys to the strategy of uh, Loud was that, like I was mentioning, that, you know, late in the round, it was very rare that Leviathan could be comfortable late round pivoting to the other site if they hadn't seen less on the site they were at, uh, because there was a good chance he was ready to give them hell as they entered site. And even more so when they were on defense, you know, you got to worry a lot when rotating around because less could be anywhere. And, you know, he might get caught by an alarm. You know, there might be an alarm bot that he has to shoot where it's going to jump up on him. You might, you know, throw a flash his way. Like, you could even, you know, take some guesses as to where he is, throw some utility at him. You still are probably not going to, you know, bring him down without a hell of a fight. 
and having that presence uh, in terms of map control that one person was able to threaten was really a big part of why Loud did so well. And, you know, that is, I think, a more rare skill than being a cracked duelist because, you know, a, a lot of being a cracked duelist is even if you're not, you know, just flashing someone full on the face, you know, getting a full flash as Phoenix and then swinging out and getting a free kill, that you're able to push into spaces either because of your utility that you have used or that you can use in response, such as a Jet Dash or a, a Reyna Dismiss, to get yourself out of the situation so you can be in a place that you never could be as someone else. And as such, you know, your aim is going to have an advantage over the opponents. Like, I, I feel dumb saying all that because, you know, most people are, are going to be like, yeah, no shit, obviously that's how that works. But I just wanted to re-emphasize that because, you know, that just makes what Les has done so much more important. The fact that he's able to, you know, top frag the lobby and also have the best KD in the lobby, uh, you know, without any of those things at his disposal. Um, but then if we kind of, you know, roll back to the other half of this duo for the, for Sadak, um, my God, he called some incredible rounds and the kind of stuff he was dialing up all match long was really, really nice. Uh, in, in particular, one thing that was very different from how loud had been in the past. And I noticed this on ascent quite a bit was that um instead of you know kind of wandering around the map making sure the defense the defense didn't push out of places you know doing a feint here a little poke and then slow down the classic like fanatic strats of really kind of starting and stopping and playing a bit of mind games in terms of oh we could be anywhere who knows uh really they just kept it kept the basics like the the biggest level of the macro relatively simple and then kind of had a lot to explore in terms of the micro that they very often would just have like a 4-1 they would have four players at one site and they would have less on the other site and then those four players were able to hit that site hard and if that was disrupted, they could then regroup and, you know, Les would know that their, they, the rotate hadn't been compromised too badly. Uh, or if they're able to get on the site, Les could just come and join them. And they also had times where they would throw some utility, bait out some utility in response, and then just sit there and wait and then hit it again. But, like, the amount of times that they just had, you know, four people outside of a site, and this was, like I was saying, especially true on Ascent, but true on the other maps as well. And they, those four people never really went anywhere besides from the main area of that one site. And they just, at some point in the round, whether a quick hit or a delayed hit or a feint and then a re-hit, it, it was just a very different way of playing the game. <laughs> like, it was just a lot of confidence in their ability of just playing numbers uh, you know, being ready to adapt to what the defense is doing and, uh, you know, 
causing them to just waste a lot of their util because if you've threatened that you're going to have a four-man push, you know, if you think there's any likelihood that that push is about to happen and you got an omen paranoia in hand, of course you're going to want to let that rip. You know, there's a good chance you die if you don't. But at the same time, you know, oftentimes that would go to waste, but then they would still hit that site anyway. It wouldn't even have the value that you see in ranked or in pro where it's like, oh, well, we used our defender utility and we stalled out the push, so we're good. So that was just very interesting for sure. Um, and then also one of the big things was just the uh, the role changes as well. That, you know, it's a little early to say, but this map, there was a decided lack of named sentinels. Uh, and I, I don't mean sentinels, the, you know, terrible capsule card having esports org. Um, I mean the sentinel role that, you know, people have said, and I believe very accurately, that Viper has, Viper just has the tools that you want in a Sentinel while also having controller tools. So it's just tough to feel like, you know, well, it's it's just very easy to say, oh, I have a Viper. Do I necessarily need a Sentinel on top of that? And a lot of teams have been still deciding the answer is yes. But Loud have this year been, you know, at least on bind, split, and ascent, been saying, no, we're just going to run our one Viper. And that gives us so much more explosive, you know, active versus passive utility to be able to force, you know, our way into positions and force people from taking ours. That the, the fact that they had, you know, all Sentinel, the not having a Sentinel meant that there were so many more options they had at any given moment to deal with a given situation. That isn't, someone is pushing into me right now, and I would like to make them uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and I'm very curious to see what they do on other maps as the year goes on, and if this catches on as well. Um, you definitely saw a good bit of this from Leviathan as well. They ran Killjoy once, and that was it. So I, I was, you know, transitioned into this by talking about Sadak, and I, you know, still think he's fantastic. But I also want to sort of broaden the conversation a bit as well to just say that it's very interesting to see this potential meta shift, and it does tie into something that I have said before, which is that when it comes to Killjoy, I have felt for a long time that she really wasn't as an on an individual level, overtuned, oppressive to play against, you know, a, a overly strong agent. It was just that she did, you know, her role better than the other Sentinels. And what we discussed on podcasts is that some of that is fundamental to her kit that having, you know, deployable mollies that you can activate remotely uh, that's just a better ability than having tripwires. And the turret, you know, just has some benefits versus the, has some significant benefits versus the uh, camera in that you don't have to be passively, you don't have to be actively using it. Um, 
And so now that they've taken Killjoy down several pegs, um, it seems like, you know, it's it's early, it's early, I admit that. But if we're going into, like, a no-Sentinel meta, aside from, I'm sure, on some apps, there still be some Sentinel activity, uh, that really goes to what I was saying, which is just that Sentinels, in general, are kind of weak at the moment. And how much of that should be changed, I'm not entirely sure. Um, it, it's always tough because you, you, the meta is a is a fickle beast. You're never sure if it's going to swing back around, and you don't want to ruin the the ranked experience too much. So I'm not really going to get into should it be that way because I don't even know if it is actually that way in the long term. But you know, it remains to be seen. All right, I'm losing some steam here. Uh, so I, I, I'm going to say right now, I'm going to cut off talking about the games that aren't allowed in Leviathan, because I've already, I've already talked about this for a while. I'm also going to take a quick break, so if you need to um, step away to play a half of a game of Blitz Chess, is that something you can do in like 30 seconds? I don't know. Um, if so, go for it. All right, guess who's back? Oh, I was so out of key. Back again. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the comp thing is interesting in terms of the lack of Sentinels. Uh, speaking of Sentinels, the team, <laughs> in a, not at all speaking of Sentinels, just trying to a rather poorly coordinated segue here. It, it, as we're talking about, you know, exciting team play and exciting team strategy and comps. It is a bit of a bummer that it seems like we are not going to see uh, NRG versus Loud until the championship of the kickoff, if they both make it to that level. Because it seems like the, the short four-team bracket is just not going to... Uh, I believe it's set up such that the the winners actually maybe they can play maybe i'm wrong i don't know i'm gonna just delete that thought because i'm not sure that i'm correct on that in the slightest um yeah back to back to talking about i was gonna say if energy and loud didn't play a game until it was meaningless that would be a bit of a bummer for the viewing experience However, I am realizing that there it's a bit of a uh, unfortunate situation either way because if they do end up playing each other in the uh, four-team playoffs, <laughs> dang it, maybe if I feel like it, I'll cut this out because I'm seeing that it looks like the playoff seeding has been drawn as of time of recording. So uh, it, it looks like it's Evil Geniuses versus Loud and NRG versus Sentinels. So I was all that speculating just to realize that what I was saying initially is true, which is that Loud and Energy are not going to face until the grand final, where I think seeding is somewhat on the line for the next tournament. But given that, you know, those are two titans of the Americas, I'm not sure how many strats they're going to be breaking out. 
I also don't know how different the prize money is between first and second place. Um, that is also something that should be pretty easy to see. No, the, the prize pool is still uh, TBA, according to uh, Liquidpedia. So, uh, anyway, um, excited to see a meaningful game between NRG and Loud, is, is what I'm trying to say here. Um, yeah, so back on to Loud as a team. Uh, let's see. I'm going back to the notes because I've, you know, I have not stuck it with the with the script uh, straight going through it. I've been bouncing around like a, a pinball a bit. Let's see here. Oh right. So when we're talking about the the no sentinel um, comp, what I thought was very essential to making that work is that they had such a fantastic lurk slash flank character in uh, Les playing Viper, and the fact that they were also just, with their team coordination, hyper aware of lurks, because on several of the maps, there was some potential that a flank could go through, for example, mid, while Les was watching the other site on Ascent. And, you know, Calm is a notable uh, flank enthusiast on the side of Leviathan. And so often he was just getting shut down, uh, even though he did have some, some nice plays, both flanking and not flanking. Uh, Loud did such a great job of, you know, realizing the timings when they could be flanked. And as they'd get the plant down or, and move into their post plant, they were just not caught off guard in most cases by a flanker and they were limited in you know how fast that flank could come through by the fact that less was somewhere <laughs> so the person that isn't just you know neon not that there was a neon but that's the classic neon sprinting on the flank because you know you don't want to run into less <laughs> so you got to be careful with that um both in terms of, you know, not wanting to get killed by him and also worrying about giving him too much map control if you vacate areas of the map too much. So the combination of having, of having a great lurk and then just, you know, really playing aware of the potential of a flank allowed them to get away with not having any flank watch utility on any map of those three, which is crazy, especially Ascent, where KJ is super at home. Um... Although split, it is very nice to have the Cypher as well, even though actually neither team ran Cypher in this scenario. Although I'm realizing some of that could be on the side of Leviathan, because I don't know that any of their players on the roster really like playing Cypher. I don't know that there's any real Cypher players on their roster, so that you know could be part of it as well. Which kind of brings me into hot take number one. So if you're feeling like things are getting a little boring, which... To be fair, they probably were a little bit. Um, here's the hot take. Info is overrated. Uh, you know, I'm sure you have seen those memes before where you got, like, the bell curve where you have the person uh, at the at the beginning, the dumb noob in the given category being like, oh, I, I think this. Um, and then the person in... Uh, the middle, uh, as the you know the curve goes up and there's a rapid growth in the thing uh, that they that they're saying actually I believe the opposite. And then when you kind of come down to the curve, down the curve as the 
uh, skill or the rate of skill increase decreases. Now you have the uh, the Giga Chad, the uh, the person who has mastered whatever it is, uh, actually having the exact same p- upper opinion as the complete noob. Um, like one thing in Valorant that would probably fit that pretty well is, you know, shooting people is the most important thing in the game. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're new to the game, that's kind of the first thing you think of. And then if you're in, like, gold or plat, you can be like, oh, well, you know, I have all these uh, crazy setups and all these neat things I can do with my util. And then you have Bren at the top level, uh, you know, with his famous rant of, you know, uh, you shoot people, you die. <laughs> like, at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, the shooting is still core to the experience. Um, it probably would have been better if I just used a more established example of that meme. But anyway, that's what I'm talking about when it comes to info. That, you know, when you're in very low ranks, people don't know where to even effectively put their info utility um, both defensive info utility and like sentinels and also info initiators. And that is very key to this discussion. This was part of my thinking about it, but I hadn't brought it in explicitly yet, which is that in addition to loud shunning sentinels, they also shunned info initiators that the only one that they, the only two that they ran were, um, uh, KO and sky who, you know, Sky is sort of a hybrid info initiator, which is why she's been so liked by she's been, you know, liked by for so long is what I'm trying to say. If my words would work, but her, that potential has definitely been taken down a couple notches by the fact that first of all, you know, she only gets the two flashes now, so she doesn't get, you know, that's two or three. Well, sorry, one or two flashes each round, probably on average. Uh, of info she's not getting anymore. And then they also changed the way the dog works to where it gives you a bit less info because you can't flick from side to side, do a little spin as you're in your leap animation. Um, So you have to be a lot more careful with how you're employing that. Um, Where was I going with all this? Right, to say that you know, it was those were the two key things of 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 Loud's picks: the no sentinel and the no info initiators. And though I'm lumping both info initiators and sentinels, uh, well, info sentinels in particular, meaning uh, KJ and Cipher and Chamber to an extent, and Deadlock to an extent. <laughs> Basically, everyone besides Sage who has no info whatsoever. Um. Essentially, I think info can be a bit of a crutch to where, you know, at the lower ranks, like I was saying, I think a lot of people just don't bother with it because they're a little confused of how to use it to its maximum effect, and their team is so easily bamboozled by just the round itself that they're not able to capitalize off the util very much, and then once you get into the mid-ranks, I'm talking, you know... uh. You can maybe throw a silver in there, but especially especially like gold, plat. Yeah, I would say silver, gold, plat. Maybe you could say gold, plat, diamond. But anyway, at that point, you know, it becomes very helpful for people to be able to focus up on what's going on, having the info. You know, if you get a ping on someone with a, a, a recon dart, all of a sudden that clarifies what everyone should be doing. 
and can really drive the round forward. But then when you get to that master level at the to- at the tippity top of the game, you know, when you're studying the opponent's tendencies and, you know, you're playing as coordinatedly as Loud was doing, um, you know, you know what to look out for. So you're not going to be caught off guard. You're not going to be putting your back to someone ratting in a corner because either you're double facing that corner together or you're flashing it uh, or, you know, with, with like a breach flash or something, no info at all, and then taking the duel with an assist that way. Um, so I, I'm, I'm feeling like there's, there's some genius to what Loud has discovered here, which is that if you're just really good at being coordinated in how you break down enemies' positions when you're taking a site, and then when you're dealing with the enemies, you know, encroaching upon you, where the, your info initiation, sorry, your info sentinels would likely be very helpful, if you're just really good at handling that, you can get away with not having the info tools. You can take that crutch away and now be able to spend that agent pick on someone that... All right, I'm fully back here. Sorry about that. My headset is turning off randomly. I'm not really sure why. Um... I think it's because I'm not actually playing anything anything through it, so it thinks I'm just, like, leaving. Uh, but anyway, um, right, you can use that slot on someone with more consistent value provided to the team. And I definitely noticed this... Um, I definitely noticed this when I was playing Sova as well, and I am in that range that, according to my little analogy, Sova should be very useful, and I did not play Sova particularly well, admittedly. Um did not enjoy playing Sova and thus did not really explore his potential at our rank. So I think that Sova can actually be in, you know, gold plat, very valuable. Um, However, I was really noticing how much, like, you know, it's great that you got someone to shoot a dart, a recon dart back sight. But how much does that actually provide you? If you're not, if you're not entirely sure where that person is, um, versus, or maybe you are sure where that person is, but you have no idea what they're planning on doing next and don't really have an advantage on how to take that fight, versus you yeet a flash at them, or you yeet a flash at a position where you think there's likely a person, and then you take that duel. Well, like, you know, you don't know if they're there, but as long as you have the team coordination to not be putting your back to someone chilling with a shorty behind a box while you're doing that. Um, now you have, you accomplish the same thing and are actually much more heavily advantaged in terms of the duel. So I would not be entirely shocked if loud who has pushed the meta in the past, you know, pushes this as a trend and other teams catch on more and more to the point where, you know, those info initiators and info sentinels are, just picked less and less. Uh, certainly not never, because there's always going to be some people who pop off on them and they're good on certain maps. But that might be one of the new waves of 2024. Um, yeah, and one of the things that I wanted to bring up with that is Calm versus Cowan Zine. 
both of whom played initiators, uh, Calm on Sky and Sova. Uh, let's see. Looks like Calm played Sky on two maps and Sova on one. And Kalanzine, who played Breach every map. And the amount of value that uh, Kalanzine provided for the team was so much greater than the value that Calm provided with Sky and Sova. Because that Breach util is really suffocating if you, you know, have people who are ready to play off of it and you're using it, you know, correctly. Whereas the Sky, it, well, I mean, Sky is much more comparable to Breach, but her stuff at this point is just a lot easier to deal with. And uh, like I was saying, people are realizing, well, not not people, but Loud specifically seem to have realized then maybe you can get away with having less info and just having stronger util in exchange for it. Um, yeah, and then we'll we'll kind of bring things to a close here uh, before I pass out from uh, my throat being sore. Um, I'm not sure why I'd pass out from that, but that's what I'm feeling like at the moment. Uh, if if I go silent for more than the couple seconds it's taken me in the past to reconnect my mic over this podcast please call 911 uh <laughs> even though hearing this podcast means that i survived to post it but we're not going to worry about the specifics there's some fluctuations in space time that are making this possible um bucky overjudge uh abrupt transition after all that but um i think in the current state of things the judge is being overrated and the Bucky is being underrated. And this happens, I think, at the pro level as well. That one of the things that I'd kind of suspected for a while, and then I did some testing a while ago that I published in air quotes in the Discord, in terms of how consistently see, how consistently at various ranges you can get Bucky kills... And I was also really focused on, at this point, deciding at, at what range it makes sense to switch for to a right-click centered on the head of an opponent to kind of, you know, simulate like a slug shot, although it's not a slug, it's just a tight distribution at certain ranges of the pellets. Um, anyway, that's a bit aside from the main topic, because the judge has... The Judge and the Bucky are both terrible for long range. Um, the Judge being better if you know someone is like two health and you need to just get something on them. And the Bucky being better if you're like, oh, well, I, I have no other gun. My classic is completely out of bullets and I need to take this longer range duel. <laughs> like, you know, you and it's a person with more health. Like, you would rather have the Bucky... Uh, even though that's still a really awful gun to have in that scenario. All that being said, the reason you buy the guns is for their short-range shotgun activities. And the thing is, since basically the dawn of the game until the recent judge nerfs, namely mag reduction uh, to from 7 to 5... Uh, in the magazine, uh, running inaccuracy added, uh, and also 
maybe there was some sort of a damage drop-off thing. I don't remember if that happened or not. That that may be incorrect, so don't quote me on that. But the other two things are really the things that I want to focus on because the big advantage of the judge for years, uh, literal years, was that you had – it was much more forgiving because of being full auto and faster fire rate, and you could just mow down multiple people charging you. Um, with the, whereas with the Bucky – you know, you can much more easily whiff your first shot and die. And also there's the potential for you to get traded if either you're swung with perfect spacing or you swing into multiple targets. The chance of you, you know, shooting one and then going through the cycle to then shoot the next uh, is just not that high in a lot of cases. But the thing is, with the current judge changes, the fact that, first of all, you have to reload after five shots, which comes out really fast, and the fact that the moving accuracy uh, you know, causes you to need more shots to kill someone if you're on the move, those really have a compounding effect, where like if you're doing the classic shotgun thing, ratting in a position and there's a herd of wildebeests stomping your way, uh, you know, you get the first kill, maybe you're stationary behind the corner, but then most likely you're going to want to reposition as you're taking the next fight because it's a close-range duel. One of the biggest things you're trying to avoid is someone pre-firing you or if you're in a spammable spot, spamming you, or if you're, you know, in a easy, like, dump a molly here and forget about you spot, that you know, that doesn't happen. And so there's a good chance you're going to be taking that second fight while you're on the move. And at that point now, you're much less likely to need, you know, an additional shot more than what you did before with that judge. So like, you know, you get you take two shots to kill the first person, maybe the second one you didn't really need it, but you two shots came out and now all of a sudden it takes, you know, two or three shots to kill the next person. All of a sudden, you know, your your judge got two kills there. And, um, you know, that's still better than having a non-shotgun, for sure, in that scenario. In many cases, you, you wouldn't get that second one. But the thing is, with the Bucky, unless there is, like, perfect spacing, you're oftentimes still going to get that second kill. And as long as you're, you know, careful to not use the Bucky like you're using a judge you're really using the Bucky like, you know, a reverse op where you're trying to isolate your fights at the ideal range of the gun. You know, you can keep rattling them off and you can do so. This is the part that I think people have really slept on for a long time and is worth focusing on now at so much longer of a range than the judge. The Bucky's one shot range is significantly longer than the judge's. Like I want to say like, you know, an additional two thirds as much um and obviously you can get pedantic in terms of like uh, how reliable you want your one shot to be to be considered one shot kill range because with both of those guns you always have the potential to get wildly unlucky and not kill uh in scenarios where the targeting circle isn't perfectly on someone's chest but the, the bucky having uh so much of a tighter spread and still more than enough damage to one-shot if a good chunk of the pellets hit, 
means that, you know, rather than the classic stay in a corner and um, you know, the, the judge move of staying in a corner, killing the first person who walks past, and then just swing it out into the horde, you know, full autoing and getting oftentimes two more, especially back in peak judge times. You know, with the Bucky, uh, you maybe uh, kill the first person, and then you swing just enough to see the next person, and that person can be significantly further away than with a judge. Pop that shot off. Now you swing back into your corner. You're reset again, and then if someone swings you then, pop them as well. Um, That... Essentially, the way I've there's a lot of you know differences in how it can work out, but I, I kind of I thought it down like I, I wrote it out like this that I think these are the current pros and cons that the judge makes it more likely for you to get one to get one kill if you whiff your first shot, um, more likely to get two kills if the enemy's spacing is just perfect, uh, because it, in a scenario where you're hitting perfectly but the enemy is following so closely behind each other that the next person swings you before you can get the next shot off, which, to be honest, I don't think happens all that often in either ranked or pro, because it is a surprisingly short amount of time in between Bucky shots, if you're not familiar with it. And that's also assuming that the person is is one-tapping you, assuming you're at full health, because the Bucky is a one-tap, so if they do anything besides immediate lethal damage, you still get that second kill. So, judge, more likely to get one if you whiff, more likely to get two if the enemy's spacing is perfect. And then in, like, you know, wet dreams of shotgun users, where, like, a whole team walks past you and doesn't clear you at all, and you trigger discipline in those, like, oh my god, this is going on Reddit moments, obviously you have more potential with the judge to just go boom, 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 and, you know, get the, get the ace clip with the judge, uh, so for home runs, obviously the judge is still going to be uh, the best that way. But I think the Bucky, in many cases, makes you more likely to get uh, two or three if the enemy doesn't have uh, perfect spacing, and just in general, far more likely to get three from a position. Um, because you just don't have to worry about running out of ammo, and you can take much more longer range fights. Like there was one uh, round in particular in the Loud Leviathan game, and this is what brought up this idea that had been brewing in the surface of, under the surface of my mind to uh, burst forth from the skull and onto the page. Um, w- w- was a round where Sadak was camping the spawn rotate of uh, Leviathan in defender spawn with a judge, and the first player swings past he um, pops them and then swings out a bit. And then the next player, he has to, because he's moving as he's engaging, he has to take th- two or three shots to uh, to kill them. And as a result, you know, he's out of ammo. Maybe he had one more ammo. And the next person easily kills him. I'm looking at that scenario, and I can find that round if anyone is particularly interested and curious about this. I'm looking at that scenario thinking, if Sadak has a Bucky in hand, he still pops the first guy, because uh, the first guy wasn't looking, and oftentimes you're trying to, you know, make those opportunities happen as much as possible when you're using a shotgun to catch people off guard. Um, 
and then he swings that KJ, and he one-taps the KJ. And now he's ready to go for that third kill. Um, and you can say, well, you know, do you really want to be, be looking at how likely it is to get a 3K as a deciding factor? Like, maybe, you know, that's just not all that realistic. And I think it is worth considering when there's such a big price difference between the guns... And in a lot of scenarios, the Bucky does just as well or better than the Judge, despite the fact that the Judge is more than twice as much of the money. And as I alluded to earlier when I was mentioning my testing, it's not like the Judge really gives you any more versatility besides shotgunning at close range. Like, it's it's not as if it has any sort of uh, long-range feature. You know, the Bucky's might be a absolutely awful feature most of the time, but at least it has one. <laughs> So I, I, I've been noticing myself in my ranked games, uh, you know, more often, even when I have a full buy, but I'm like, I kind of want to play with a shotgun in this given situation. This happens most on Yoru by far. Just buying a Bucky instead of a Judge. And, you know, not trying to sound too cocky or anything, but I kind of feel like I'm onto something. And I wouldn't be surprised if... We see that happen more in prose of less judge, more Bucky. So thank you for coming to my TED Talk on that. Uh, overall, to tie things up in a bow, uh, Loud Leviathan was absolutely fantastic. Uh, loved that game and you know brought up a lot of so many, such a big variety of topics. It's so cool to see Loud doing new things, uh, you know, not moving on from their ex to someone hotter, <laughs> but moving on from their ex to someone who maybe is better for them. <laughs> and meanwhile, their their hot ex is living large with their new uh, significant other and, uh, you know, fell upon some hard times recently, but uh, it seems to still be in a position to do good things going forward. Um, so I, I hope that that wasn't too difficult to listen to um, without the much missed uh, banter from Chase and Cass and pushing back on what I'm saying. And that, that was somewhat interesting. So thanks for tuning in to drunk Valorant episode 111. And with that quick sip, we'll drink with you later. <laughs>